If you'd be turning in your Bibles to the <clears throat> the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah, this is where we'll begin today. Um, after a couple of opening remarks, those of you that were in class a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a uh, we had a fairly exhaustive presentation uh, about the 30 uh, the 38th chapter, talking about. Uh, Hezekiah and Sennacherib and him returning, or the 37th chapter, him returning uh, the way he came. Uh, we gave quite an overview of that from the standpoint of what the scriptures said about it. But there were several there were several points in that that I wanted to visit this morning just briefly. I don't want to take the whole time to talk about that because we, we do need to, we need to move forward. But in the 37th chapter and in the 38th chapter, Hezekiah does something twice. And if you look at the 37th chapter down around verse 14, the 38th chapter down around verse 2, what is the thing that he does? Well, but yeah, but when he turns his face to the wall, what does he do? That's, it's, it's the what, it's the what is what he, what he does. He prays. And I don't want that point to be missed. I don't want the point to be missed that in his time of need for God's help, in his time of illness, he didn't turn to other men. He didn't turn to other mechanisms. He turned to God and prayed. The Bible says in James, the effectual fervent prayer of a what? A righteous man availeth months. There's your, there's your righteous man. Now, was he, was he human? Was he sinful? Yes, he was. We'll see that later on. But the fact that when he was in need of God's help to turn back an army that was twice the size and had surrounded his city, and the fact that when he was sick and had been told he was going to die, he prayed to God, and God saved him from Sennacherib, and God saved him and added years to his life. Now, does that mean... That if you get a diagnosis of cancer, if you get a diagnosis of an illness, that praying is going to cure you? No. But it sure won't hurt. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous person, avails much. Prayer is essential. It was essential in this time. It is essential today. That was one of the points I wanted to make. Uh, the other point that I wanted to make was that in chapter 39, envoys from ba- uh, Babylon come, and what does Hezekiah do? He shows them shows them his treasury. He shows them what else? He shows them his armor. He shows them everything he has. When someone comes into your home, what do they see? Do they say order? Disorder? Do they see obedience? Disobedience? Dale says they see dust. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're going to talk about dust on God's balance. Understand you're nothing but dust on God's balance, by the way. Do they see courtesy, discourtesy? Do they say indifference? Do they say indifference? 
Do they see a family that squabbles among itself? Do they see a husband and wife who are always arguing? Or do they see a positive outlook on life as they come into your home? The envoys from Babylon saw everything. Hezekiah laid out everything that was in his treasury, everything that was in his armory, everything that he probably should have kept to himself he showed. And Isaiah tells him in the 39th chapter, everything that they saw, they're going to take from you. They're going to take everything. And so at the end of all of this, Sennacherib, the Assyrians, have been dispatched. They are no longer a threat to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. And Isaiah perceives that now by God's message and says, it's now Babylon that you have to worry about because Babylon is going to come. And unlike the Assyrians who God turned away because of your sin, God is going to take everything from you. And we know in 561 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar does just that. He takes everything and leaves only a remnant behind. And so as we start the 40th chapter, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty dark time, but it's also a time of jubilance for the people of Israel. Sennacherib has been turned back. 185,000 of his men have been killed by the pre-incarnate Christ. Sennacherib himself has been killed in his palace. But the envoys from Babylon have come and gone. And they know everything now. They know where everything is. They know where everything is stored. They know everything about everything. Hezekiah, in his jubilance to show off what he has, has given away everything. And Isaiah now understands that it was not the Assyrians... That, he should have, that the people should have feared, but it now is the Babylonians that they must certainly fear. And so at the beginning of the 40th chapter, what does he begin his comments to the people with? Comfort. Comfort ye people. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. The Syrians have been vanquished. That her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then we see in the third verse, as well as the fourth, something that we'll see later on in the New Testament. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So as we begin to look at this, comfort is being preached to the people. They have survived this, and they can take great comfort in the fact that they have survived it. Who made these statements in the New Testament, that the, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Who said that? John the baptizer, or John the immerser. And so these are words that are talking about the Messiah. Someone is coming. Remember that the Old Testament tells us that someone is coming. The first four books of the New Testament tells us someone is here. And the remainder of the New Testament tells us what? 
someone's coming again. That's an easy way when you're talking to people about the Bible to talk to them about it. The Bible of the New of the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament what? Revealed. Okay? Two ways to talk to folks about the Bible. Someone's coming. Someone is here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Someone is here. And someone's coming again. And so as we look at this, we see that the prophet is telling them to take comfort, that there is one who is coming, one who you can rely on. The voice says, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? And then he goes in verses 6, 7, and 8 and talks about the word of God. He talks about the, flat, the fact that all flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. I was looking at my backyard the other day and we've not had rain. The grass withers. The crops fail. Things happen that are bad. But the word of God stands forever. This brings to mind, to me at least, in verses 7 and 8, one of those great Bible themes, the brevity of life. Life is but for a moment. It's like the flowers that, that bloom and then fade away. I've had, some, I've had some beautiful flowers in the garden this year, but most of them now are dead. They survive for a short time, but then they die. The psalmist says that my life is faster than a weaver's shuttle, that shuttle that moves back and forth when someone's on a loom. Many, many illusions given to the brevity of life. The grass withers, the flower fades. Because of the breath, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And now, in beginning of verse 9 of this chapter, Isaiah has probably some of the most profound observations about God that you can ever read in Holy Writ. And I don't want to shortchange you as, as, a, as a class by letting this just slide by as a reading and then just be forgotten as we move on. This contrasts the greatness of God and the, the, the smallness of man. O Zion, you who bring good tidings... Get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. In verses 9, 10, and 11, this is one of the early messianic Prophecies, remembering that chapters 40 through the end of the book, chapter 66, 40 through 66, all this now is talking about Babylon. It's talking about the deliverance of the people out of captivity, them going into captivity, they're coming out of captivity, and then the coming of Messiah. That's what the remainder of this book is talking about. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. Who is that? 
It's Jesus. Jesus will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs to his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Notice here, in talking about the shepherd, not notice a couple of things about the shepherd. He provides them, he carries them, and he leads them. He feeds them with what? What does he feed? What does he feed his flock with? The word of truth. He feeds his flock with the word of truth, his kindness toward them. He leads them in paths of righteousness. And notice, he gently leads those who are with young. Does a baby walk as fast as you do, as an adult can? How about an elderly person who's, who's, who's many years? Do they, do they walk as fast as someone who's in the youth? The Savior, the Savior never moves faster. He walks with those who are feeble. He walks with those who are young. He doesn't try to outpace them. That's what he's saying here. He carries them in his bosom and he gently leads those who are with young. And then in verse 12 begins Isaiah's talk about the greatness of God. Who has measured the waters that he holds in the hollow of his hand? God holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Who has measured the heavens with a span? Who's calculated the dust on the earth in a measure? There's some thought given in Scripture to counting the sand on the seashore. They should be as the sand, the the children of Israel should be like the sand on on the seashore. We're not talking about sand here. We're talking about dust. He's measured the dust. He knows the dust that exists on this earth. He's weighed the mountains in his scales and the hills in his balance. How great is our God. A lot of this reminds me of what he talked about with Job when Job demanded an audience with God to talk to God about why he was being treated the way he was. And God spends chapter after chapter talking to Job about, where were you? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when the angels sang out? Where were you? The greatness of God, that he can hold the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. How much does Mount Everest weigh? God knows. He's weighted in his balance. Who's directed the Spirit of God? Who's been his counselor? Who counsels the one who knows all? Who counsels the one who sees all? Who counsels the one who is everywhere? Who counsels the one who knows your very being? Who can count the hairs on your head? Who's been his counselor? Who's been his teacher? With whom did he take counsel and who has instructed him and taught him in the pathways of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are as a drop in a bucket. I was thinking about this last night as I was 
getting ready to help my wife fix dinner. We were pouring some liquids in to make a to make a, a casserole, and, and I poured some liquid in, and there was there was a drop left in the bottom of it that just kind of hung to the bottom of the Pyrex thing. It wouldn't come out. Did I care about that drop? No. The rest of the liquid was in. That drop in the bottom of the bucket meant nothing to me. And that's what God's saying here. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. They mean nothing to him. Are they counted as the small dust on the scales, to Dale's point? You got dust in your house? Imagine the balance, a set of balances that you're being weighed on. There's dust on that balance. Does it make any difference at all? It makes no difference whatsoever. We're really the dust on the balance to God. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. England, Scotland, the isles, is what I think of when I read this. And I'm sure there are other islands that you think of, Cyprus, Crete, other islands. God lifts them up. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor it's be sufficient for a burnt sacrifice. <clears throat> what does that verse mean? Verse 16. What does verse 16 mean? Hmm? I'd burn up a whole country. Set the whole country on fire. The whole country of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon. Set the whole country on fire. All of the animals that are in the forest. All of the animals that exist. None of them. All of them together are not sufficient. As a sacrifice to God. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, there's a, right. Right. Yeah, and it, he goes to great lengths to talk about the, 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 the idols that are fashioned by man's hands. But I think this goes more than anything else to the very first verse. Comfort you, my people. The God that you serve. The God that exists, the God that created the heavens and the earth by the power of his voice, he spoke the world into existence. This is the God that you should worship. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, you're right, he's going to put those in contrast to all of the idols that man creates. But I think this is, I think this is more to set down, this is why you should be comforted. You should be comforted by, sure, sure. Right. And also, this is the God, by the way, that you've been summarily rejecting for thousands of years by marrying people God told you not to marry, by going places and doing things that God told you not to do. And God, in most instances, frustrates those things. But when the people follow him, great things happen. When the people follow God. And again, I think the contrast between this and the idols that you get to at the end of this chapter and then on through to, through the 66th chapter where he talks incessantly about these idols and, and how God is the one who created all this and these idols are just carved images that stand there mute. They don't do anything, yet you worship them and they're made from wood and they're made from, they're made from gold and silver. They are not, they are not this God. They are not the true God. So, verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? And now we, now we do the analogy to the idols. To whom will you liken God? Is there an idol that is like 
the God that has just been described? Or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver change. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a a tree that won't rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now look at verse 22. It is he who sits above what? The circle of the earth. You know, Galileo and some other people could have avoided a lot of problems in their time if they had just read the Bible and understood that God sits on the circle of the earth. The earth is not flat. It says so in Isaiah. The earth is not flat. He sits on the circle of the earth. That means the earth is round. And we got some people today who believe the earth is flat, too. They believe you sail out to a certain point, you're going to sail into an ice sheet. Okay, whatever. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. Insects. Pests. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I always think when I read this about being out in the country at night where there's no city lights and looking at God spreading out the curtain of stars across the heavens. My God can do that. My God has done that. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he also will blow upon them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, by the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Nothing escapes God. What you do in secret, what you do in front of other people, what you think of other people, what you say, God knows. He sees everything. He knows everything. He understands everything. He is God. What do you say, O Jacob? And speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He neither faints nor is weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so as we look at this chapter in, in, in total, we see this immeasurable majesty that is our God. We see his divine majesty. His creation, the seas, the heavens, 
the earth, the mountains. We see his divine power, his boundless strength, such that he can hold the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. And he takes up the very aisles as a very little thing. We see his divine knowledge. Who can teach him? Who was his counselor? He has all understanding. He cannot be taught anything by anyone, for his knowledge is already there. And we see in him divine wisdom. And then we look at ourselves as humans. We see our insignificance, that we are nothing more than a drop in the bucket or dust. Our impotence, our ignorance, our foolishness. How great is our God and how little are we in the face of that greatness. Comments on chapter 40 before we move to chapter 41. Yes, ma'am. There are, uh, there are a lot of useless things on the Internet today, and I'll, I'll say there are a lot of useless things on YouTube. Um, I mean, you can watch you know, cats and sweaters. Okay, if that's, that's what you want to watch. You can watch cats and sweaters, uh, whatever. I like to watch the live uh, cameras that are out in the wild, especially the eagle's nests. If you watch those on YouTube, they're just a, it's just a continuous stream. And you watch both the majesty of nature and the cruelty of nature all at once. Two eaglets growing up together, one stronger, one weaker, and you watch the weak one eventually die. And the parent pushes it out of the nest. And you see the strong one fed, growing with its little fluffy eaglet feathers that it has, and it stands out on the edge of the nest, and it's trying to fly. And you watch the mother do what she's just described. We serve an awesome God. Why would you not want to do everything that he wants you to do? Chapter 41. The great I am. He is still in the throes of talking to them about God's strength. There are various things in Holy Writ that talk about God's strength. It talks about his hands, his fingers, the great detail that the prophets give to the greatness of God and how his, remember we talked earlier in Isaiah, that although we sin, although we stray away from God, his arm is always extended. It's always there for us to come back to him. He always stands ready to take us back no matter what the sin, if we're willing to ask for forgiveness for that sin. So with God as our strength, we start to, as the, as the writer does here, we start to take a look at the world around us and the world that we're in. And there are many sources of trouble for us in the world. There are the forces that Neil talked about this morning that are allied against us. There are the burdens of responsibilities that we have as Christians to do the things that Neil was talking about this morning, to care for people. Now, I don't know if you've realized it or not, but outside this door, the world is a very ugly, very unfeeling place. 
anymore, especially. Person against person, everything you can imagine as far as evil, whatever evil man can concoct. I'm, I'm, I've told you all, I, I've quit watching the news. I, I just don't watch the news anymore because there is no good news. There's only good news in this book. And so when I'm feeling pressured by the responsibilities of the world, when I'm weighed down by the disquietude of society and our culture, I turn off the television and I read my Bible. And I find comfort. I find a peace that passes understanding. I don't understand it. I don't understand how reading this book gives me peace. I just know it does. And the other thing that bothers me is my weakness. And I, you know, I drive too fast. Everyone who knows me knows I do that. That's my sin. I stop at stop signs. I do all the things that I should do in the school zone. But I speed. I like to go fast. I'm sorry. That's my weakness. My own feebleness. You have your feebleness. You have what the Hebrew writer calls the sin that doth so easily beset us. Sin is an awful burden. Sin is an awful, sin is an awful weight upon our shoulders. But like Hezekiah, we have prayer. And even though we are feeble, with God's help, we can rise up like the eagles. And we can fly like eagles. You notice he said in the last part of the 39th or the 40th chapter there, talks about youth. I know I don't look like it, but just take my word for it. I used to run track in high school. I used to run track in college. For, I think it was about 30 minutes, about 30 minutes, I held the state record in the 100-yard dash. It wasn't meters in those days. It was 100 yards. For 30 minutes, I held the state of Texas record in the 100-yard dash, and then one of my best friends in high school in the final beat me out, and he took the state record. But I had it for 30 minutes. Had it for 30 minutes, feeling pretty good about myself, until Douglas Mitchell chased me down. He also beat me in the 110 high hurdles that day, too. And I know it don't look like I could run over a hurdle. I probably probably couldn't get over one of these pews right now. But there was a time when I was young, and I could run really fast. I could run faster backwards because I played defensive safety. I could run faster backwards than most people can run forward. Here again, I used to be able to do that. Can't do it now. But youth will fail, according to Isaiah. Youth will fail. All you young people out here smiling and everything this morning, you're going to get old someday. And we can laugh then. So all the young people laughing now, in a few years, come on back. We'll be laughing at you. We'll talk that chapter 41 next week, Lord willing.